0: This is Farmers Inside Track, supported by Food for Mzansi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs.
1: How's Mzansi? Welcome to another virtual episode of Farmers Inside Track, a podcast proudly brought to you by Food for Mzansi. If you're listening from South Africa, we are still in lockdown, unfortunately, of course, to try and curb further COVID-19 infections. And we're taking it on the chin because we are understanding that it really currently is the only way to fight this pandemic. If we haven't met, my name is Ivor Price. I'm the co-founder of Food for Mzansi. And joining me virtually is Quibus Lawrence. He's the other co-founder of South Africa's leading agricultural news and lifestyle brand.
0: Yes, Ivor, we're about halfway through our 21 days of lockdown. I think I'm getting used to it, but I'm also very ready for this to be over. In the meantime, we're getting a lot of love from South Africans who visit the Food Form Zanzi website and our social media platforms and send us messages there. Thank you for that. We appreciate it. And the rest of our team appreciates it. Joining us this morning is a guy we greatly admire. Wandile Siklobo is the chief economist at AgBiz and is the author of a new book called Finding Common Ground, Land, Equity and Agriculture.
1: Quibus, of course, Wandile's inspirational story is also included as a chapter in our own book called For the Love of the Land. And we've been dying to talk to him about his debut book. Undoubtedly a must read if you are interested in how agriculture is shaping the future of this country. Stay tuned.
2: Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right?
0: Welcome to Wandilesi Klobo, Chief Agricultural Economist of Agbiz.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. First question I want to ask is, how's self-isolation going for you? in this time of COVID-19.
2: Yeah, for those of us which is similar to you guys on the essential service for now, it's really been a difficult period in a sense that there's a lot of glitches that have been on the system and uh, means that people had to work a little bit more than usual. So while one might have anticipated that the self-isolation period will be somewhat quiet, it actually got more busier than the other usual days, but all for delivering service on a food sector on side, as I imagine for you guys also on making sure that the communications in the country are running smoothly.
1: One day, I must tell you that I never thought I would miss the office, but here we are now. Team Food for Mzansi did a little happy dance when your book was released, and we definitely want to hear all about it. But maybe as a way of introduction, agriculture wasn't initially part of your future plans. Were you set on becoming an accountant? Yeah, I mean, we're set on, on becoming an accountant, and that was influenced
2: about what was happening um, in our upbringing. I mean, if you think back in the early 2000s, uh, the South African Institute of Chartered Accountant, with DST. They were running all of these campaigns on trying to ensure that they increase the number of the African students that are on the accounting stream. And I was part of those students that were in, in, in their pipeline. But obviously, upon arriving in Alice at the University of Forte, and getting to be in a residence, which was mainly agricultural students, interacted with them and also went into some of their classes, which is where then I began to gain interest on economics, firstly in general, but also as I attended those classes, and got to hear more about the global food crisis that was happening at that time, it made one to be interested in knowing what's the food system looking like, where is the food that we consume coming from, what's the bigger story or the structure behind it. But I think there was also a developmental angle, because if you come from areas that I come from in the Eastern Cape, there's still less development, particularly in the Transkei area. What we have on that side is really the smallholder farming in large part, And I think the idea for me was then to say, how can that agricultural activity that exists there contribute in a bigger scheme of making sure that there is development upon also knowing now at the stage that there is this bigger global food system that is out there. And I think those two factors really influenced how I changed my decision from accounting and moving on into agricultural economics.
0: Your upbringing in Alice really shaped your perception on agriculture in South Africa very fundamentally.
2: I think it's in two ways. I would say Alice and also later on the experience of the guys at, at MATIS in, in, in Stellenbosch. Because all of these institutions, they contribute differently on, on, on all of the activity that, that we do. At least the analysts, philosophy or the way they teach agricultural side, they largely focus, at least at the time that I was there, on the developmental side. That's their approach. You hear more about development, you hear more about smallholder farming and all of those things. But when you get into the University of Water with guys like Professor Nick Fink and all of those, you hear more about the policy side, which is also geared on the developmental angle, but not solely focused on a smallholder, but saying smallholder and commissioner how can the bigger story of policy look like? So both of those angles gets to be complementary Um, on that. I would say on the other side, you get more on a practical, more of a rural development, while on the other side, you get the policy to overlay those. So I would say both of those really shape fundamentally on how one views the world, which we practice.
0: If we fast forward 10 years now, it's a long time since your student days and you've become quite a mover and shaker when it comes to agricultural policy formulation. Do you have any mentors in this field? And perhaps if you could sing a lot some farmer mentors
2: there are a lot of uh, mentors uh, for one when they look at, on this field because as you are practicing as you are moving on a day to day you are learning a lot from people sometimes they're not actively aware that you are, you are learning but i would say people like professor nick Fink, one of the people that have changed or influenced uh, significantly on how one views the sector and obviously, people like Ben Besta, who was at the University of Forte, one of the key people in as far as development is concerned, Professor Johan Kirsten, those were really the people that were fundamental. But I would say also joining on on a on grain essay in the early stages, that also helped um, through the interactions with, with various farmers on understanding on how the decision making gets to be made on their side and what are some of the things that, that the frustrations either from a policy perspective or from a production perspective that as an economist you can perhaps maybe add value on. So I would say I've had a benefit of both those that are in academia and also a benefit of those that are in the farming sector because in much of what I do I interact I would say consistently with both of those worlds. I get to have certain phone calls with farmers, visit some of the other farmers, but at the same time, I get to have just as much regular interaction with the academia and also the policy makers. So I'd say playing on on that sphere and really drawing insights and perspective from different angles is what assists one um, to hopefully better deliver what they do.
1: There are so many perceptions about farmers in South Africa, but the one thing that struck us about your chapter in our book, For the Love of the Land, was your experience of white and black commercial farmers, equally conservative. What did you learn from them, Mondino? I would say what's more important is really
2: understanding uh, both sides of why do people do what they do and uh, if they are making certain decisions and not to jump on and say, okay, you are wrong here, one, two, three, but rather to reflect firstly on why would certain people view particular issues in a way that they view. And that uh, entails one understanding their worldview, which is what I think on my side has been helpful because If you go to Forte, it's a historical black institution. So there is some sort of heritage that is in there, that is really on an African strong heritage that is on the university. And you get to inhibit that. And as you live on that environment and equally side, when you go to the University of Stellenbosch, it's a historical Africana university. And there's some part of that heritage that is on the institution. And you get to go through same streams on a social side of the institution, just like you got um, at the University of Forte. And now what that does, it assists you at most times when you are walking through these worlds in South Africa so that you can be able to reflect and have perspective on each and every farmer in, in, in the country. Because at the end of the day, all of the farmers in the country, they really want their businesses to progress, their communities to progress and development to to, to okay. So I think that when we are judging or when we are dealing with people, particularly on a policy related stuff, it helps to step back and listen and try. Try to get a perspective on where they're coming from on that angle, which is why I think maybe some people do not do that often, which is why you get to have all of these frictions that are there in society. But I think, though, now comparing to years back, yes, uh, on a policy proposition, there's been some heightened debates that are, are happening in the country. But I think we are coming on at an even better stage of actually understanding each other and having some bit of appreciation of the value that each person brings in, particularly those that are in the food sector. And my hope is that after these COVID-19 streams, when we begin talking about policy, we can be more constructive because I think there's been some increased appreciation of the value of those that are in a food production, particularly at this time.
0: Amen to that. Your great new book called Finding Common Ground, Land, Equity and Agriculture. What inspired you to write this book?
2: I mean, the book is really, as I say, at the conclusion of it, that it is a harvest isivuno in closer. what the book does is that i looked back at a number of work that i've actually been writing in various columns for uh, various newspapers but mainly business day. And I found that there is a thread in the conversations that I get to have in those writing, depending at a time of the year as well as the events that were happening um, at the time. And the whole idea now putting on a book was really this is a collection of essay in persuasion, particularly when it comes to development as well as on a land reform policy side. I thought it would be best if I can collect and go and harvest all of those essays that I put in there, put them on a thematic perspective and show and try to show the value of the sector and try to weigh in on a land reform debates that have been happening and saying these are some of the propositions that I think perhaps maybe the country could take forward. But also leaning on a development angle of the stuff where of saying what needs to happen, where to make sure that we expand the value of this sector, we expand, we increase the number of participation on this sector, looking on both on a women perspective and bringing young people on the sector. But I think generally the key inspiration was for all South Africans to really understand the value of of agriculture in an economy perspective, not only just on a food security perspective at which people look at to say there are a lot of intricacies that are in in this sector and it has a huge role to play, particularly on the twin challenges that we face as a country in a rural economy side, which is the one, the issue of limited economic activity and also this higher unemployment that we see in rural economies to say, how can agriculture contribute in addressing all of those challenges? And I think as I navigate in a book on various policies, but the key goal is really um, in pursuit of people to say, in achieving or in solving these challenges, this is the role that agriculture can actually play. But obviously, when one gels on, on the policy-related one, um, I draw a lot of strength on the question of really making sure that there is a joint venture approach which that is rooted again on the sharing of skills between those that are on the public sector, outside of the agricultural sector and those that have been traditionally really been active on the agricultural sector and also the sharing of resources. So the book is really the pursuit on saying this is the value of the sector, this is what it can contribute. On all of these policies that we are, we are discussing let's be cognizant of a certain dangers and let's move in a particular direction and these are the options that in my personal perspective I think could be useful.
1: Wanda, you kick off the book with a great story of how you became an agricultural economist. We also spoke about it a few moments ago but I want to know has it been a bit of a baptism of fire to enter this space as a young black man because let's face it for a long time this part of the sector was pretty closed off.
2: Yeah I mean I think for me I've been blessed in a sense that I got to have this when I was reflecting and actually about to write um, the preface as well as a contribution that I did uh, on For the Love of the Land that is, was written by you gentlemen. And one of the things was really, I think that the, the timing for me was particularly right if one can say that, but also I've been blessed by running into people that really opened a number of the doors because I wouldn't necessarily say that it was a lot of effort that comes from my side. I mean, if you think back, getting onto uh, Stellenbosch, we had people like Professor Nick Fink who ensured that you were able to get all of the support that you needed. Um, the university adjusted the language, particularly our department. I can speak. Adjusted the language to make sure that you are fully accommodated and part of the community. And leaving the Stellenbosch University and joining Grain SA, where people like um, Mr. Yanni de Vilias, the CEO of Grain SA, who've really opened the doors, the officials at Grain SA as well, um, they were good on, on to that, on working on, on that environment. But obviously, I think one had to work a little bit harder also on portraying some bit of knowledge about what we're working on, which is what um, I think is the one of the other things that assist on farmers giving you an ear on what you say. And I think they were also open to those. And then getting on into actors where also had people like Dr. John Purchase, really open up the space for one to be able to exercise whatever intellectual work that they can put on the table. So I would say for me, I've been lucky on running into spaces where there was a lot of people that really opened some of these doors and some bit of an effort um, that has been coming on my side. But I must say though, if you are, if you are a Black person coming on in, in these spaces, there is traditionally that preconception that you hear that, okay, there's not a lot of Black guys that, that are there. And I think though, and I will make the statement, is for anyone, not only of people of a particular race, into whatever space that they are in. But I think if there's few of you in that space, you have to try to do whatever you can well so that you can open doors for other people to follow through, or maybe people can see through you and say, okay, we'll bring more of a people like, like him. And this is not to me, but I'm saying generally, these are some of the things that we could be cognizant on. But I have been fortunate uh, on my end.
0: The biggest issue at the moment, of course, is obviously the COVID-19 pandemic. But the moment we hopefully survive this, we'll have to face the matter of land expropriation without compensation again. You also write about land reform in your book, has the debate unfolded quite differently since you first started following it?
2: The new developments that have, have come through, obviously, the intensification of a discussion around uh, expropriation without compensation. Because if one thing's bank, yes, land reform conversation has been happening pre-1994. If you look at the earlier work written by the World Bank, Professor Johan Kerstin, Johan sale and a number of scholars, Prof. Fink, and all of these guys have been writing on that work. And obviously, the issue of expropriation surfaced in the in the early 2000s, but it was expropriation with just and equitable compensation. It is only now that it intensified. Uh, but I think uh, the one thing that one can just say on this is that South Africa's agricultural sector is highly capital intensive. So anything that is not attracting capital into the sector is not advisable to actually pursue that. Um, And the book I have put in there, which is, again, trying to persuade people to say, let's look in other options other than expropriation without compensation that can effectively deliver land reform with minimal disruption on the sector, which was one of the most um, of the motivation behind putting the book. I mean, if you look at the book, about half of it, it's 250 or so pages, and about half of it is land reform related. And in there, I'm trying to persuade those that are in policy making and also the general public to say there are dangers if you go with outright expropriation without compensation. What you can perhaps do, explore a menu of ideas that can be able to effectively deliver land reform in the country while causing minimal damage. And you must be cognizant of the fact that we are highly capital intensive. And if we have any dream of bringing new people and expanding the value of the South African agricultural sector, we will need to bring that capital. And that capital can only come if there are property rights, strong property rights in the country. So yes, land reform has to happen, but we must be careful about what path do we take to deliver the land reform.
1: You have direct access Mr. President Cyril Ramaphosa, initially as a member of the land reform panel, Wandile, but now also as a member of the Presidential Economic Advisory Council. What are the key matters that you believe government needs to be focusing on to move this country forward?
2: There's a number of issues that we are currently on the on the debate and discussed. Aside from the COVID-19, I mean, the big story is that of the power utility, uh, of getting electricity the power supply in the country. And straight after that, I would say the other big thing is making sure that we capacitate um, the local governments for, for service delivery, because it's one of the, uh, the important things, because whatever we can think about in as policy, if on the delivery side there's not some same enthusiasm and the skill set to delivering that, uh, we could experience some bit of challenges. And I think the president is thinking deeply about that. But also then the agriculture and the rural economy um, is very much central to some of the sectors that can actually deliver a progress in in the sector. And one of the questions we consistently ask ourselves in there to say what it is that we need to do on agriculture to ensure that we expand its value, We tap in on some of the underutilized land and and areas. We attract investments. We attract new players in the sector. And we make sure that there is vibrancy in areas where the sector participates on. Part of the central points then that we we tell the president is really in line with the few points that I just mentioned now. To say strengthening um, the property rights, attracting investments in that is really one of the key goals as which we're thinking about. And also agricultural infrastructure, particularly in the former homelands. It's one of the things that um, is is of key thought. And I would say even Minister Tideza shares some of those uh, views when we presented. I mean, uh, a few months uh, we have had as as a panel some of these discussions about other sectors uh, with the president. And and these were pretty much part of the central uh, debate.
0: Speaking of Minister Toko Didiza, the Minister of Agricultural, Land Reform and Rural Development, she's clearly a source of inspiration to you.
2: Expressing my view of development and getting their insights on how they view development and finding common ground on that to say, okay, this is a vision. Because we have to have a vision for the country and we all have to buy into it. And thereafter, we have to know who's driving what part in that vision and what are the timeframes at which we are working on. While the story of land reform, I continue to push it with those that are in the political spaces, because right now the issues of land reform are far beyond head department. It's the stuff that is already sitting on in the National Assembly requiring inputs. But I think ensuring that you have the private sector agriculture on your back and you are working in the same vision with them would be one of the key things that I would first do as I walk in that room, as I hope that that's what she's um, at least now trying to embark on.
1: How confident are you that our current political leadership will be able to comprehensively deal with some of the burning points in agriculture? You also write in your book about the quality of leadership. I think um, the politicians will be forced by the
2: issues of the day to actually address some of the challenges in agriculture. Because if again, I mean, take it, for example, an area like Bizana in the Eastern Cape. If you are thinking of development on that area, you really have to think back on looking on agriculture and saying, what can agriculture do? And I think one of the things that we perhaps maybe have to be kind on is that there hasn't been a time, at least in my memory in South Africa, where agriculture has been really part of the central day-to-day discussion when we think about development like today. Now, the key question then now is to say, what ideas and at what speed Can we really pass on these ideas to politicians to make sure that they align their views with the private sector? Because again, politicians alone cannot deliver much in as far as making progress on the ground, but they have to have a backing of the private sector. And that requires that there is some common vision between these two parties on what needs to be done. And my hope is that on the agricultural master plans that are currently being developed, we can be able to fill in that void and make sure that there is a buy-in from both parties, clear appreciation of what each one can bring to the table, and what then this sector can actually do for delivering our progress. Because if you map the areas of growth in agriculture in South Africa's economy, agriculture is always really appearing there because we have a challenge here of a surplus labour that we are having, largely um uh, uh, unskilled. And now the question is to say who can absorb that labour in the near term at a much uh, quicker space. And agriculture gets to be, to, to be one of those sectors. I know that there gets to be a temptation or a view, which is rightly so, of saying, let's move to the high-tech things and all of that stuff. But that's the economy of the future. We need to be thinking about the economy of the now, which has roughly 10 million unemployed South Africans, largely unskilled to say what sector can really absorb a good pool of those people and what are some of the preconditions we need to put on the table for that sector to be able to thrive. And that needs the stable environment, a stable policy environment, consistent power supply and policy that is really predictable and clear on going forward. And I think after this COVID-19 and people have had some time to reflect on the fragilities of the food system and also the fragilities of having high unemployment rates in the country. Perhaps maybe that might come with a change of a heart, but we'll see how things turn out. But obviously on our side at the Agricultural Business Chamber, we consistently have these ideas with policy, with these discussions with policy makers on seeing the value of the sector, trying to make sure that there aren't destructive policies that are put in place. And we will continue with, with that work uh, post COVID-19.
0: You're quite passionate about the agricultural subsectors that you believe have the potential to boost economic development in some of the rural areas as well. What are these um, subsectors?
2: One of the things, Kobas, uh, that we are facing is obviously the story of unemployment and the story of no economic activity. And one has then to look back to say, in agriculture, where are the jobs gains at? And if you look at it, I mean, our horticulture and field crops is about two thirds of the overall employment in agriculture, which is about 880,000 people that are working in a primary agriculture. And my sense is that if we are thinking about expansion, let's rather put more effort on those that are sitting on the horticulture related space. But obviously, this is not to say ignore field crops. Ignore livestock, because in some areas where horticulture can do well, livestock gets to be extremely important. I mean, we've seen good examples of what can be done with livestock. You think of selling group and some of the development work that they do. And in a horticulture side, you think of human stop co-op and what they do on a horticulture related stuff. You think of Sunday River guys, and then you see what is actually happening there. And in a grain on a field crop space, I mean, Yanni De at, uh, at Grain SA has been doing some wonderful work also on the development. Uh, so there's a number of things that are actually happening in there, which I think we can tap in, looking at the agroecological conditions of the area and seeing
1: what can we maximize. As someone that follows you on Twitter, I've noticed that you and Minister Titum Buweni have a thing for cannabis. <laughs> Maybe I should rephrase mm-hmm. that. The power of cannabis as an exportable commodity. Why is that? If you come uh,
2: from where I come from, you will know that uh, cannabis on on its own has really been grown in the shadows of the law, anecdotally, we've seen those. Um, There's even studies uh, from some guys from the University of Stellenbosch who have written about the Daha belt. Over the the recent past, we began seeing the value of the cannabis uh, growing in a global market and many other countries really liberalizing up the growing of this crop. And on a South Africa perspective, then one comes from that perspective to say we do have some knowledge about growing on in this crop and leaning from what we're seeing on the Transkei area, but also the possibilities on an economic perspective that this crop can actually bring in those communities and a broader economy on a tax revenue side, which is something that the country might appreciate. The key motivation or key goal behind the cannabis story is around the gains that South Africa can get from it, but also the fact that we will be developing a new value chain, which means that now there's a lot of activity that can actually be done in the process. And there's a lot of jobs that can be created in that particular process. But what we need to do in the immediate term is really setting up some policy framework because I worry we talk a lot about the gains of the crop, but we're not really talking a lot about setting on some framework as well as policies that are guiding this conversation.
0: You also write about some of the key lessons that South Africa can learn from other African countries. Um, I found that quite interesting because normally South Africans are a bit arrogant and we tend to think that other African countries should be learning from us.
2: You know, one of the things that I was trying to do, is looking on it in two ways. I mean, if you look at it, for example, right now in South Africa, you listen to various conversation. There are temptations to interfere with the food market, either to put price caps and all of those things. And the idea for me that it's coming, actually, all of these ideas now are emanating after the book I have written uh, that chapter last year, but it still feels very relevant because in some of the other African countries, we've seen what happens when you're putting on price caps that's just one of the ideas that we have to say, if South Africa is thinking about these things, we need to know the limitation and the unintended consequences of doing this. But I think also on a more positive side, I mean, if you look at the avocado industry of Kenya and, and, and what has been happening there, there are some few lessons at which we can take so we can learn both what not to do and also what to do where there has been successes. And also on the story of technology, the African continent has not been really open on embracing some of the of the technologies, particularly biological technologies like genetically modified seeds and all of those things. And in South Africa, we're beginning to see some resistance in some corners against some of this stuff, uh, while turning a blind eye to the gains in productivity that these crops have actually brought uh, to the sector. So it's really saying reflect on the other countries that I've. Uh, ignored some of these technologies and see how good you have it here. So as you are arguing against them, you must see all of these gains and be able to balance the, the equation. That's really the idea amongst that. But obviously on the chapter, I draw in from various countries and various examples, looking at the Zimbabwe in some, looking at Kenya in some, looking at Zambia in some, depending on what the policy framework that they followed on that end. But there's a lot we can learn in the African continent, both on what to do and both on also what not to do.
1: Food for Mzansi definitely recommends that every South African and buys your book in closing one day we're in lockdown until at least the middle of April but unfortunately books are not on the list of essential goods that we are allowed to buy at this point in time. Is it also available as an ebook?
2: it's available as an ebook on Amazon, Kindle and also any other ebook formats that people use the book is out there they can be able to get that and I'm deeply appreciative of the opportunity that food from zanzi has given me Thank you so very much.
0: So before we say goodbye, are some fun questions, I know that your book is getting great reviews, but what does your family think at home of your writing and, and your style of writing?
2: I think they're only going to be able to have a sense of how I'm writing uh, after this lockdown, because they haven't really had the copy. And I am not quite sure if they've been following some of the essays. So it's going to be an interesting period uh, to hear from them on what their feedback is going to be like on the ideas that I try to advance um, on these particular essays. But I think that would be more critical than the reviews that have been very kind that I've been getting.
1: Wandile Futum Zansi's <laughs> editor, Don Nundu, said I should ask you one question. What is your lockdown jam, that one song that gets you grooving every day? I listen to a
2: lot of, uh, I don't think people know this, but I listen to a lot of hip hop. So for now, I've been listening to a lot of Nas Lost Tapes too.
1: Wow, are you a big hip-hop head? I'm only listening to (laughs) hip-hop. Well, that makes my next question a bit awkward, our last question. So you're stuck at a fancy government dance, okay, a really fancy one. And your only dance partner is Minister Toko Didiza. What would be the song that you would want to get down with, on the floor with Minister Didiza?
2: (laughs) A difficult one, but I don't think I would look on a hip-hop with a minister. I will perhaps pick a song, someone from Tandiswam Which one? Depend on the mood, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Wandile Klobis. Thank you for joining us, Wandile Klobis, the chief economist at Agbiz and the author of Finding Common Ground, Land, Equity and Agriculture, a great new book about the challenges and opportunities faced by Zanzi's agricultural sector. Thank you.
1: Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, stay healthy, stay at home and stay with foodformzansi.co.za for daily inspiration from the unsung heroes of agriculture.
0: You've been listening to the Farmer's Inside Track podcast, supported by Food From Zansi. For more information, find us on www.farmersinsidetrack.co.za.